You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. If we're not careful, the story of Captain Morgan could get a bit repetitive. We're getting close to the end, but before we get there, I wanted to look at the story today through a different set of eyes. I'm going to try something a little bit outside of the norm, and I hope you enjoy it. If you do, let me know, and if you don't, also please let me know. This is episode number 28, Deception. The Spanish were taught from a very young age of the debauchery inherent to the Lutherans. They were told that the Dutch, the Protestant Germans, and the English were all heretics, scoundrels, and pirates. The English were said to be the worst of the lot. They had discarded the word of God and the true faith to wallow in sin and depravity. They were a nation of whores and robbers, pirates, brigands, drunkards, and rogues. That was what Spanish children were taught about the English in school. Now, an educated Spaniard, a soldier, and a sailor who had seen more of the world would know better. He would have spent time in, say, the Spanish Netherlands and met many Dutch men and women. He would have seen their culture and the beauty inherent in it. He would have accepted the surrender of many an honorable English sea captain and even, on occasion, except a defeat from one of them as well. He would have seen the English as adversaries, to be sure, but not devils. However, in the case of one Spanish captain, far from home, on the island of Jamaica, in the city the English called Port Royal, all of those childhood prejudices would have come flooding back. The whole town smelt of rum and waste and filth. The buildings... Those not built by the Spanish were little more than shacks or tents. The filthy, narrow streets were flooded with stinking, drunken Englishmen. They were stumbling and cursing, vomiting and brawling everywhere this particular Spaniard would have looked. There were muggings and stabbings, murders, all done right before his eyes. The bodies left on the street were picked clean by men who were looking for valuables and then by dogs who were looking for dinner. Presumably, someone would eventually come and dispose of the body. The Spaniard in question was horrified at the sight of so much casual violence and debauchery. He was horrified as well at the women leaning from alleyways or windows with their breasts exposed that were calling to him. He was horrified and admittedly tempted. Spain, of course, was not without prostitutes, but this Spaniard had never seen so brazen a display, such wanton sluttery paraded about there was no sense of modesty or propriety but what horrified him perhaps most of all and surprised him more than anything else was the religion practiced in port royal this was a devout catholic spaniard but he had visited dutch churches he had met with french calvinists and even seen anglican services on the battlefield they were heretics sure and spit in the face of his eminence the pope but not in the face of god himself these men, however, these Lutheran corsairs, were something altogether different. There was no service held at their local church. The old Spanish building had been converted into a brothel. The only minister he had seen attempting to spread the word of God was actively laughed at and harassed by these scoundrels. Even Jews were permitted to practice openly, without a hint of shame. In fact, here in Jamaica they were treated with respect, and the pirates stepped wide to avoid offending them. What kind of place had this Spaniard come to where Jews were accepted and Christians, albeit 
Protestant heretics, disregarded God altogether. At all of this he was horrified, but he did not show it. He sat on a stool in an open-air rum sink. There was a canopy of palm leaves that broke the heat of the sun, and the sea breeze carried away some of the stink of Port Royal's inhabitants. He sipped at his wine, but only in so far as a man with a cup of wine would be expected to without raising suspicion. It was truly awful stuff anyway. He swayed to the songs that were being sung. He raised his glass when called to do so, and he laughed whenever some drunken fool fell from his own stool. He did whatever he needed to to avoid attracting attention, and kept a sharp eye out for anybody looking too hard in his direction. Now, no one was. The only men not too drunk to see clearly were either serving him wine and tipped well enough to keep to themselves, or his own companions keeping out an equally sharp eye. They could only keep this up for so long, however, and time was running short. This Spaniard's name was Don Alonso del Campo y Espinosa, and he was here, in the New World, halfway round the globe from his home, on orders from his master, the Catholic monarch, King Charles II of Spain. Well, in truth, the orders came from his mother, Mariana of Austria, the queen regent in Spain. The king himself was only seven and not yet ready to rule. Don Alonso had heard troubling rumors about the young king, though, that he had been born malformed, that he possessed a tail, webbed feet, and some even said a forked tongue, but Don Alonso gave that no credence. They did say, however, that the king was unstable, given to fits and tantrums, and not in command of his mind. He wasn't likely to reach adulthood, they said, and if he did, he wouldn't be fit to rule. There were others in line for the throne that would make better kings than Charles were something to happen to him. These people said a lot of things, but Don Alonso put them out of his mind. He was sworn to serve the king, and court rumors weren't his concern. What was his concern, his very immediate concern, was the mission. He was currently deep in enemy territory, pretending to be Dutch, drinking wine that tasted like urine, and waiting for his contact there in Port Royal. He had picked up a command of Dutch from his time in the Netherlands, and even a convincing accent, but a real Dutchman might spot his ruse. The longer he waited, the more likely that was to happen. Finally, though, his informant arrived. He was not what you would call an impressive man. A corsair, yes, a cut purse, and even a turncoat. But he was paid out to keep an eye on Port Royal and share with any Spanish agents what the English dogs were up to. God willing, today would be no different. After a brief, hushed conversation and the clandestine passing of a purse, Don Alonso rose and left his wine mostly untouched. The other two men with him waited a time and then left separately to rendezvous with the harbor. Don Alonso arrived first, and while he waited for his companions, he admired the ship that had brought him to Port Royal. She was Dutch in design, a flat-bottomed, square-rigged, two-masted vessel. Not exactly elegant, but Don Alonso was impressed with how smoothly she sailed, and with so small a crew, the ship could carry twice as much cargo as any Spanish vessel— these ships would make an excellent addition to the royal trading fleet, but they were really a luxury. As smooth as they were, and as much cargo as they carried, they carried no guns, and their speed was limited. At first, the lack of guns had made Don Alonso deeply uncomfortable, but a Dutch ship flying Dutch colors faced very little danger in these Caribbean waters. Don Alonso thought fondly of the day that the Spanish could sail these ships that had so helped the Dutch, a day when the English corsairs had been swept off the map, eradicated from the Americas, and forgotten in the sands of time. That day was coming, and coming soon. He, Don Alonso del Campo y Espinosa, had been charged by God and his king to make it so, and he would not fail in his mission. When his men arrived, they boarded and asked the crew to see them out of port as soon as possible. As the ship headed from Port Royal, Don Alonso thought about the road that had brought him here. Earlier in his life, he had distinguished himself 
fighting against Spain's adversaries, but still his country was in turmoil. People were going hungry, growing desperate. The empire was being chipped away piece by piece, and her power was waning. They still held the mainland and all of the riches it held, but that was not what it once was. Philip II had funded Spain's wars with ink and silver, but trade was now the order of the day. The hated Dutch now controlled the East and the spice trade that went with it. They encroached on Spanish interests in the West Indies. England and France established colonies wherever they chose. The trade in African slaves was in the hands of the Portuguese, which was now slipping away from Spain as well. All of these things could be born, and even fought, if they were safe in their homes, but time and time again, the English corsairs sailed boldly into Spanish harbors, killed men, raped women, tortured the young and the infirm, they burned homes and they defiled churches. All of this piled on top of all of the injustice that Spain had endured was too much to bear. And then, those corsairs took everything of value. They took the gold, the silver, and the pearls. They took ambergris, furs, dyes, spices, powder, steel, everything. Usually, the corsairs could be fought off, but more and more frequently of late, they were successful. San Francisco de Campeche, Villa Hermosa, Grenada, Puerto de Principe, Maracaibo, Portobello, and untold other villages and towns too numerous to name. Something had to be done. Francois Lolonnais had been a true terror, but reports said that he had vanished and was presumed dead. Now, though, there was a new commander of these corsairs, an English gentleman, trained in warfare. He was devious, talented. He was a born leader. They called him Henry Morgan. The queen had taken steps to rectify this situation. She'd signed a secret treaty with the French Sun King, a trade alliance. The governor of Tortuga was no longer to hand out letters of reprisal against the Spanish. Instead, the French would focus on their ancient enemy, the English. Troops were being massed as well in Havana, Cartagena, Santo Domingo, Panama, all the great cities of the West Indies. Those dogs back in Jamaica would never see it coming. The Spanish would retake the island and expel the English, the Jews, and even any natives left lingering around. First, though, the Corsairs and Henry Morgan had to be dealt with. They acted as a sort of a navy for the English on Jamaica, and any invasion could only be guaranteed success if they were removed from the picture. To this end, the Queen was rebuilding the Armada de Barlovento. The English, in their indelicate tongue, named it the Windward Fleet. Lesser squadrons were posted at key locations, but the central force of the Armada, sent from Spain, was currently sitting at anchor near Cartagena. His commander, Don Agustin de Bustos, was the fleet's admiral, and the Nuestra de la Soledad was their flagship. She held 48 great guns and 12 smaller swivel guns, and a complement of several hundred soldiers. Don Alonso himself was the fleet's vice-admiral, and he commanded La Concepcion, a 44-gun warship nearly as powerful as La Soleda. They had, as well, La Magdalene, 36 guns, La Santa Luisa, 26 guns, La Marquesa, of 16 guns, and Nuestra del Carmen, of 18 guns. Each of these ships held all manner of swivel guns and smaller firearms, as well as well-trained Spanish soldiers, not the wobbly-kneed colonial militia that the corsairs were accustomed to fighting. The Armada de Barlovento was built for one purpose and one purpose only, to defeat the English on Jamaica and send them back to Europe and their little island. This Henry Morgan was no Francis Drake, whatever the reports said of him, and this Armada would not be so easily defeated. Now, Don Alonso's first mission, upon arriving in the New World at Cartagena, was to gather intelligence on the actions and whereabouts of the English pirates. To this end, he'd sailed for Tortuga, the French pirate haven off the coast of Hispaniola. He'd sailed on a commandeered Dutch vessel, the same upon whose deck he stood now, but he'd been less discreet about who and what he was. The sudden appearance of several Spanish officials was met with no small amount of panic there in Tortuga, but they were now to cooperate against the English as per the governor and the king's orders. At first the locals were 
standoffish, to say the least, but they soon warmed up to the Spanish over a few cups of rum and no small amount of coin. There, in Tortuga, Don Alonso learned of the explosion of the English man-o'-war, the Oxford. This was good news, but the ship had never really presented any real danger to the Armada. Unfortunately, though, her commander, Henry Morgan, had survived. Then a number of French corsairs that had been with Morgan's fleet when the explosion happened told of his capture of two French vessels and the arrest of their crews. These men were disgusted with Morgan and his English boucanier. They gave a grisly account of the fleet fishing the dead from the water, hundreds of them, only to loot the bodies and dump them back into the ocean for the sharks to devour. These men, these French buccaneers, were, as it turned out, glad to talk. They were not loyal to Morgan, quite the opposite in fact, they hungered for his fall. Morgan and the English fleet had returned to Port Royal to rest and repair after the explosion, which is exactly why Don Alonso found himself there. What he'd learned when he went to Port Royal incognito was, well, not much really. Weeks prior, on the first day of 1669, Captain Morgan had departed for the Corsair's agreed meeting spot off the southern coast of Hispaniola. No one in Port Royal knew where they had planned to strike, but they knew that it was somewhere to the south. Panama, Cartagena, Caracas, maybe. It was possible, if the Spanish moved quickly, to cut Morgan off while the English waited at Hispaniola. The crew of that Dutch vessel that Don Alonso found himself on coaxed all possible speed out of her to get the Don to the fleet of Cartagena, where he could report to the Admiral, and then they could plan their next move. With God's help, they would be fast enough to catch Morgan. The Vice Admiral of the Armada de Barlovento arrived in Cartagena and immediately knew something was amiss. His ship, La Concepcion, and their flagship, Nuestra de la Soleda, were both missing from the harbor. Perhaps they had caught wind of the Corsairs and sailed to meet them, but then why was the rest of the fleet still sitting at anchor? The two warships were more than a match for anything Morgan had in his fleet, but the smaller craft could follow Morgan into the ports and rivers that the larger ships just couldn't. No, something was wrong. It didn't take him long to discover what that was, though. As he disembarked, the captain of the Magdalene was waiting for him with a letter from the governor. The Queen Regent had recalled the flagship and Don Augustine. His own vessel was recalled to Spain as well. Now, Don Alonso captained the Magdalene, the new flagship of the fleet, and he was to serve as the fleet's admiral. It had been decided that the warships were not suited for this sort of mission. As it happened, Don Alonso agreed with that assessment, but the loss of two warships did limit his options. However, as admiral, he would be able to conduct this operation in the manner that he chose, and he would wind up being known as the man that brought the English corsairs to their knees. Don Alonso began to plan and hand out orders almost immediately. The fleet would sail as soon as was possible for Hispaniola. Their first landfall was to be the Isla Avaca at the far southwest of the island. It was the most likely place for Morgan to gather his forces if he planned to raid Panama, Cuba, or Cartagena. If he were not there, the fleet would drag a net across the whole southern coast of Hispaniola, looking at every inlet, every cove, every lagoon, behind every tree, and under every rock for Morgan. They would find him. And if that failed, they would trap him. Don Alonso del Campo y Espinosa failed to capture Morgan at Isla Vaca. His net had found not a trace of the Corsair fleet. No one they had spoken to in any village had seen even a hint of him, or at least they weren't talking. The Admiral had finally, in desperation, resorted to laying a trap. And it had come so close. They'd bought cattle from every ranch willing to sell, and some that weren't too willing to sell. The animals were all gathered in a valley, easy to find and even easier to watch. They had lookouts and messengers prepared to trap the corsairs and lead them to Morgan. Well-trained men, really, the best in the Americas. And they failed. Some men, Morgan's men, had come hunting. The ambush was executed perfectly, but 
Then the pirates fired back. Without hesitation, there was no surprise, no alarm, no fear. They shot like expert markmen in a rapid, quick succession. When his own cracked Spanish soldiers dove for cover, the corsairs fled. The soldiers, of course, pursued, hoping to get the jump on the English, but when they got too close, they were fired upon again. In the end, too many men had been shot and had to be rescued. There weren't even enough left to take the pirates now, so the Spanish soldiers returned to the fleet as fast as was possible and gave him the news. Morgan was, after all, somewhere nearby. So the Armada searched frantically all around the area, but Morgan couldn't be found. Like some devil or like some spirit, he disappeared. So the Armada sailed east for Santo Domingo. On the voyage, they'd been beset by foul weather, and the Nuestra del Carmen was lost at sea, and all of her sailors presumed dead. There, at Santo Domingo, they heard that several ships, small vessels of English make, had stopped and bought provisions, and then headed still further east. So Don Alonso followed that trail, always a step behind Morgan. It led, at last, to Puerto Rico and the city of San Juan. There, the trail went cold. No one had seen hide nor hair of the Corsairs. It was over. He'd failed. The mighty, or at least at this point formidable, Armada de Barlavento sat uselessly at anchor. The men were in despair. They so hungered for a taste of battle, an ounce of revenge for the wrongs done to their people. And he, Don Alonso del Campo y Espinosa, had failed. But God had always blessed him with Talent, yes, ambition, certainly, but most of all, luck. When his mission seemed lost, providence intervened. As they sat at anchor, a small boat rowed out to La Magdalene. It carried a lone Indian who was unarmed and apparently harmless. He was brought aboard. The savage hinted that he might have knowledge of Morgan if he were properly encouraged to share it. Don Alonso handed over a small purse, and the Indian shook it near his ear. Apparently satisfied, he said only one word, Maracaibo. The Indian climbed overboard, back into his canoe, and rode away. For a brief moment, Don Alonso pondered, having him captured and the purse returned. But no, it was a paltry sum, and this was his only lead. Back in Spain, he would have had the man killed, but then he never would have had to resort to bribery back in Spain. Finally, after weeks and weeks, he was beginning to see how things were done on this side of the world. So the fleet jumped into action, and with the dawn, they sailed due south for Maracaibo, Captain Morgan, and revenge. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Step into the hidden corridors of the past with Hometown History, where every episode uncovers the untold stories and secrets nestled in the streets and alleys of our own backyards. We bring history to life revealing the extraordinary in the ordinary from local legends to forgotten tales that shape the communities we know today. Tune into Hometown History and embark on a journey through time right from where you are. On the voyage, Don Alonso poured over maps and charts, planning his assault. It looked to him like Maracaibo would be the perfect location to confront Morgan and the English pirates. The Gulf of Venezuela, quote, funnels down at its inshore side to become a narrow channel, like the neck of a flask, and then opens up out again into the almost circular lake of Maracaibo. End quote. To Don Alonso, it resembled an hourglass. 
At the narrowest part of the glass, three islands blocked the way into Lake Maracaibo, Bajaseco, Zaparo, and San Carlos. The channels between the islands were a maze of shifting and dangerous sandbars that threatened to beach a ship, even a ship with the shallowest draft. It was just as well that the two warships had sailed back for Spain. They would have been useless here. The channels were no more than twelve feet deep in some places, and navigation of them was slow and dangerous work. And there was a surprise here, too, that Morgan would not have expected, and that may have spelled his doom. Two years prior, the French devil Francois Lelonnais had sacked Maracaibo, and the event had scarred the city. The governor had overseen construction of a new fort at the small islet San Carlos. The San Carlos de la Barra fortress guarded the channels into the lake and should have deterred any invading force. Don Alonso half suspected that Captain Morgan would have turned and fled after seeing the fort, or perhaps have already been captured. Both possibilities unnerved him. Had Morgan fled, that meant the hunt was not yet over. Had he been captured by some provincial authority and not the Queen's chosen agent, it would be a black mark on his record. However, if Captain Morgan had somehow made his way past the fortress and into Lake Maracaibo, he would be trapped at the fortress by Don Alonso's vastly superior force. So he approached Lake Maracaibo and the fortress warily. It was not beyond reason to suspect that the wily corsair might have taken the fort and left a garrison in place to defend against any incoming Spanish troops. But Don Alonso was a careful, calculating sort of man that would not underestimate Captain Morgan's cunning. So, scouts were sent ashore in the night while his main vessels were still far out of range. They were to discover if there were any men left inside the fortress. However, there were none. The fortress was empty, so Don Alonso himself was rowed ashore to see exactly what the situation was. When he got there, the castle was silent and still. At the base of the fort's walls lay eleven cannon, half buried in the sand. Upon inspection, it appeared that they had been spiked and unceremoniously dumped over the walls. Don Alonso went inside, and room by room he inspected the fortifications, searching for any signs of the English corsairs. There were some. The armory had been emptied, but whether that was by English pirates or Spanish defenders was still unclear. There was really little else of consequence until he detected something, an acrid, stale scent in the air. Don Alonso followed it deeper into the fort until he found a room with a broken lock that assured him that the fortress had been defeated and taken by Captain Morgan. There were remains of gunpowder and gunpowder casks, and a trail of powder leading to it. There was an inch of hemp, a smudge of soot on the wooden floor, and a great gash across it. Don Alonso stood over the evidence and replayed what had happened in his mind. Morgan had smelled that same acrid smell, but this time fresh rather than stale. He'd followed it through the castle to this very room, broken the lock, and kicked open the door. A fuse had been lit, leading to the trail of powder. The fort's defenders had fled, yes, but they left this fuse burning, leading to their powder stores. They'd planned to sacrifice the fortress de la Barra to take Morgan down with it. Risky, clever, and dangerous. But Morgan had kicked the door down just in time. An inch of fuse remained before the powder would alight. Morgan stamped his boot upon the lid end, drew his cutlass, and dispersed the powder and the fuse with a mighty slice. Then he kicked the end of the fuse across the room. Standing there, Don Alonso could imagine the long-haired dandy, saber in hand, wearing his lordly coat and his captain's hat, illuminated by his men's torchlight when they realized that once again he'd saved them all and outwitted the Spanish. And then the pirates had even stolen the casks of powder. Don Alonso spat out a flurry of orders. Messengers were to travel, on sea and over land, to every city, fortress, and town in the region to gather militia and ships to trap the English. Every fighting man was needed. The guns that had been spiked were to be repaired and put back in place. Half the guns from the fleet were brought ashore to fill in the castle's defense. When they were all in place, the Spanish would have a total of 126 guns guarding the channel, all aimed directly where Morgan would have to sail if he ever planned to leave Lake Maracaibo. 
His three ships, La Magdalene, La Santa Luisa, and La Marquesa, were positioned to guard each possible escape route and to cover each other in the event of a battle. Any men who were not engaged in crewing the ships, any soldiers, were rowed ashore to man the fortress. Then scouts were sent to Maracaibo town to see what the English had been up to there. While Don Alonso was overseeing the fortifications, his men brought a few men before him that were wearing well-worn militia uniforms. They turned out to be the soldiers who had been manning the fortress, and Don Alonso questioned them to see how it had been lost and exactly what kind of forces Morgan had at his command. The garrison had been ill-prepared for an attack. There weren't funds to properly supply it with either men or provisions. All told, the spectacular fortress held only eleven cannon and had a mere nine soldiers to man them. Maybe four cannon could have fired at a time, but probably only three, and doing that would have kept these nine soldiers from guarding the approaches to the fort by land. It was a story Don Alonso had heard more than a few times. Poorly trained, poorly paid soldiers in deficient numbers were expected to defend the great Spanish cities against better trained and better armed pirates in far greater numbers. How could the Empire hope to survive in circumstances such as these? Well, that responsibility lay on the soldiers of men like him, men of education, tactics, intellect, and action. Eventually, the scouts that he'd sent to Maracaibo returned. Again, they reported that the city was abandoned, but this time something disturbed them. Don Alonso ordered the militiamen to guide him to Maracaibo and lead him to any survivors they might know where to find. They did uh, come across some few women and children coming down from the hills to the safety of proper Spanish soldiers. They had a hunted look about them, one and all. Their clothes were ragged and they all looked hungry. When the company finally reached Maracaibo town, Don Alonso finally understood the troubled look on his scouts' faces. The city had been brutalized. Bodies of men dotted the streets. The warehouses had all been ransacked, and the homes too. The church had, as usual, been defiled by the English dogs. But all of those things were expected, not so troubling. But then, there were signs of horror. Men and women had been strung up. Others were put to the rack and flayed. Some had been burned alive. All manner of terrible tortures had been brought upon these people. The dogs had been at them too, and the crows. He asked the survivors that had come down out of the hills how long these people had been out there, how long it had been since Captain Morgan left town. Five weeks, they told him. For a moment, Don Alonso was stunned. Then it broke. He raged at the people. How could they leave their friends, neighbors, and family out here like this? More than a month, and they hadn't been cut down and given a proper burial? He was livid. Children began to cry, women to weep silently, and men to cower. Finally, in the midst of his tirade, a woman shrieked at him, They eat people! Then he saw it. Finally. These people were broken paralyzed with fear. Two years ago, Lolone had ravaged their town, and before that wound had healed, Captain Morgan came, raping, pillaging, burning, torturing, and murdering. They had nothing left with which to fight. Don Alonso ordered the bodies removed and given a proper burial. He asked the people to lead his men to any survivors and then to follow them back to the fort. But first, he asked them about Morgan. Where had he gone, and after the raid was done, had he disappeared? No, they said he had turned his attentions on Gibraltar, just across the lake, and been there since he left. This, according to the other reports that Don Alonso had received, meant that Morgan had not left the lake and his trap would still be viable. So Don Alonso returned to San Carlos de la Barra to await Morgan and his men. They had no other option but to sail right to him. There was no overland route that was passable, swamps that the men would be unable to pass, mountains that were far too high to climb, and deserts. No, they were coming this way. A few days later, one of the locals arrived at the fortress. 
and he had a message from the Corsair captain. Morgan had returned to Maracaibo, and his men held it once again. He demanded a ransom for the city. He swore that he would burn it to the ground if the troops were not removed from the fortress and his pirates were allowed to pass. It was a bold message, but expected. Don Alonso had Morgan at a disadvantage. He knew a fair bit about the pirate. Reports from his previous raids had been detailed in the man's character. On the other hand, Morgan knew nothing about the admiral. Not his face, not his name, nothing about his character. And right now, Morgan was feeling him out just to see how he would respond. So Don Alonso sat down to pin a reply. It read, quote, Having understood by all our friends and neighbors the unexpected news that you have dared to attempt and commit hostilities in the countries, cities, towns, and villages belonging to the dominions of His Catholic Majesty, my Sovereign and Lord Master, I let you understand by these lines that I am come to this place, according to my obligation, near that castle which you took out of the hands of a parcel of cowards." where I have put things into a very good posture of defense, and mounted again the artillery which you had nailed and dismounted. My intent is to dispute with you your passage out of the lake, and follow and pursue you everywhere, to the end you may see the performance of my duty. Notwithstanding, if you be contented to surrender with humility all that you have taken, together with the slaves and all other prisoners, I will let you freely pass without trouble or molestation on condition that you retire home presently to your country. But if you make any resistance or opposition to what I offer you, I assure you I will command boats to come from Caracas, wherein I will put all my troops, and, coming to Maracaibo, will put you, every man, to the sword. This is my last and absolute resolution. Be prudent, therefore, and do not abuse my bounty with ingratitude." I have with me very good soldiers, who desire nothing more ardently than to revenge on you and your people all the cruelties and base infamous actions you have committed upon the Spanish nation in America. Dated on board the royal ship named Magdalen, laying at anchor at the entry of the Lake of Maracabo this 24th of April, 1669. Don Alonso del Campo y Espinosa. End quote. This letter was sent off to the captain, and two men arrived a few days later to discuss Morgan's counteroffer. He agreed to free the prisoners he had taken in Maracaibo, and the slaves as well, and to leave the town unmolested in exchange for safe passage out of the lake. Mostly, this is what Don Alonso had asked. However, Captain Morgan made no mention of the people he had murdered and tortured already, or of the treasure. This would not do. Don Alonso gave his reply to the messengers to be sent back to Morgan. Quote, if they surrendered not themselves voluntarily into his hands within two days, under the conditions which he had offered them by his letter, he would immediately come and force them to do it. End quote. Two days he'd given the Corsairs. He was certain that Morgan wouldn't accept the deal. These pirates cared for nothing but plunder. But he had given the English a deadline. In two days, either Morgan would be forced to flee, or he would be forced to march upon the pirates. So he prepared the men for either occasion. He knew that Morgan was likely to attempt an attack on the fortress in the night, just as he had done at Portobello. If he gained control of the castle, he would then command the water. Don Alonso fortified the defenses and ordered a stout guard kept. The two days passed without any hint of the English. Then, at dusk on the 30th of April, the English ships appeared on the horizon. There was a litany of tiny vessels, good for no more than ferrying men from port to port. The only ships of any real consequence were the two converted French merchantmen, which had been taken after the Oxford explosion, Morgan's own ship, the Lily, and a moderately armed galley out of Cuba that Morgan had taken at Gibraltar. There would be no match for Don Alonso's warships and the fortress. The Spanish were all on high alert, and they kept watch in every direction. These ships appearing on the horizon were likely a diversion for a land assault in the night, so none of his men slept very well. When the morning finally came, the English set sail directly for the Spanish. Orders were given to prepare for battle maneuvers. The Cuban ship, the newest in the fleet, took the lead, 
It moved heavily in the water. Apparently, Morgan had loaded her with his guns and prayed that she would be able to take on La Magdalene. She could not, no matter how many guns she carried, but she could put up a fight. Out of range of the fort's guns, the smaller craft in the fleet peeled off and held back. Ah, it was a bold move. Probably the same Don Alonso would have chosen, faced with the same circumstances. Morgan intended to send his strongest ship in close, so close that the guns of the fortress wouldn't shoot in fear of sinking Don Alonso's ship. This would also, possibly, keep the other ships in the Spanish fleet from joining into the battle for the same reason, a fear of accidentally hitting the Spanish. Locked in battle, trading broadsides, Morgan likely thought his men might just be able to board his ship La Magdalene. This would, potentially, put the battle in favor of the buccaneers. It was, in all honesty, the only move he had left to make. His men were skilled, and it was their best chance, but in reality, still a doomed one. Morgan and his men must know that they had no chance, and had chosen to go down fighting. An honorable decision, if unwise. Don Alonso almost admired Captain Morgan for making it. The Cuban ship sailed dead ahead, straight for battle. Her gun ports were bristling with cannon. He must have cannibalized all his other guns to arm her. The men on board stood the deck defiantly, showing no fear, hardly moving. The ship came closer. The men held their breath, waiting to see how the English would engage. No, something was wrong. Those men were standing too still. The ship should have turned to present a broadside. And then, from above, in the crow's nest, Don Alonso heard, Fuego. Several men from the oncoming ship jumped overboard. Then Don Alonso saw it. The men he'd seen on board were dummies, constructed of straw. The rigging of their ship was littered with grappling hooks to grab his own. These cannon weren't cannon at all, but casks of powder, the very same that Morgan had taken from the fort. And the ship was billowing smoke. Don Alonso opened his mouth to give a command, but at that moment, explosions rocked the air. Flaming debris flew in all directions. It landed among the pitch and tar and hemp of his own vessel. There was no time for La Magdalene to escape. He gave the order to abandon ship and jumped overboard. As Don Alonso hit the water, the fire ship rammed his own vessel. Men were thrown into the air. Arms, legs, timber, flaming tar, the mizzenmast of his own vessel all came crashing down into the water around him. He began to swim for shore. When he escaped the flaming wreckage, he took a look around to get his bearings. Behind him, his own ship was burning. The screams of his men followed him. To his right, La Santa Luisa made for shore, and to his left, Morgan and the buccaneers closed in. Coughing, dripping, and bleeding, Don Alonso del Campo y Espinosa climbed from the water. He turned to look back. The Santa Luisa had made it ashore, and her men were making for the fort. The wreckage of La Magdalene was indistinguishable from the fire ship that had taken her down. Together they sat burning in the shallow water. La Marquesa, it appeared, was now in the hands of Morgan. All her boats were rowing for shore, and the ship was sailing back towards the pirate fleet. This was a true disaster. But all was not lost. The fort still commanded the channel, and Don Alonso still commanded the fort. He made his way up the beach, into the castle, and began barking orders for her defense. Before the hour was out, Morgan's men made an attempt to take it from him. They flung their fire pots and their hand grenades, they took aim, and they fired their muskets on his men, but this was the pirates' first real encounter with any Spanish soldiers, and they showed their true mettle. While Morgan may have used devilish trickery to sink La Magdalene, he was no match for Don Alonso and his soldiers. In the end, the English retreated from the withering fire. They were even unable to retrieve their dead, lest they become one of them. After the skirmish was over, a last messenger came from Morgan, giving his terms. This time, the messengers were locals, and they begged Don Alonso to capitulate to the pirates' demands, give him passage, or he would burn Maracaibo and kill all his prisoners. The wretches begged Don Alonso to agree, but he replied, quote, If you had been as loyal to your king in hindering the entry of these pirates as I shall do in their going out, you had never caused these troubles, neither to yourselves nor to our whole nation, which hath suffered so much through your pusillanimity. 
In a word, I shall never grant your request, but shall endeavor to maintain that respect which is due my king according to my duty. End quote. Don Alonso would not allow Morgan to escape. He knew the corsairs couldn't take the fortress, and he knew their reinforcements were on their way. When they arrived, he could crush Henry Morgan for good. Then, at dawn the next day, he saw something he didn't see coming. Morgan's fleet, off in the distance, were sending boats full of well-armed men ashore. They carried pikes, muskets, and drums. The boats would then return to the ship and thence carry more men ashore. It appeared Morgan knew reinforcements were on the way as well, and his time was limited. He had to take the castle and defeat Don Alonso if he had any hope of escape. Of course, there was no hope of taking the castle either. Don Alonso ordered the cannon moved from the seaward side of the fort to the landward, and posted his soldiers and guards to defend the fort from a frontal assault. And then he waited. Dusk came, then full night. Midnight passed. This was the prime time for an attack. His men were alert and prepared to fight off the pirates. And then, from the far side of the fortress, one of his men screamed sails. It appeared the reinforcements had come. Don Alonso ran to see how many ships were coming. When he saw, his heart sank. The sails belonged to a dozen or so small craft, to Morgan's Lily, to his own Marquesa, and they were just out of range, sailing into the Bay of Venezuela and to the open sea beyond. Don Alonso del Campo y Espinosa had failed. Captain Morgan had escaped. In the end, Morgan and the buccaneers made off with 250,000 pesos in combined treasure, not counting the slaves they had freed. He returned to Port Royal, once again a hero. This was Captain Morgan's greatest raid to date. Although Don Alonso would never know it, he had pulled his last trick off in the simplest of manners. Those boats that were dropping off soldiers on the shore, well, they weren't dropping off anyone. The men would get onto the canoes, row across in full view of the Spanish, and then sneak back around to the boats, lay down in the bottom of the boat, and row back over to the main ships, where they would sit back up, row back over to shore, and perform the whole charade all over again. The reinforcements did eventually arrive, shortly after Morgan made good his escape. They weren't happy with the situation that Don Alonso had so badly bungled. He was arrested by the local governor and sent back to Spain, but eventually freed by the queen and even honored for his service. Don Alonso put on a brave face after all of this, but such a distinguished soldier just could never believe that he'd been outwitted by a lowly English pirate. Thanks for listening. I really hope you enjoyed this episode. The story of Don Alonso is an interesting one. Personally, though, I'm not sure about it. This was yet another story of Captain Morgan raiding a city, and a city that we've seen sacked before, no less. So I was looking for an interesting way to try and tell this story, but there are some problems I have with how I chose to do so. Some elements of this story were really historical fiction. I stuck to the true story, but I also put Don Alonzo in some places that he probably wasn't. It would have been one of his underlings that was in Port Royal rather than himself. His soldiers went to see what was happening in Maracaibo, not him. He would probably have stayed in the fort. And of course, I don't know, literally, what he was thinking from moment to moment, but I put words in his mouth and thoughts in his brain that helped explain what was happening. There's also questions about what I left out of the story. For example, when Morgan left Maracaibo and went to Gibraltar, well, what happened there wasn't known until much later by the Spanish, so I couldn't tell about it in this format. Now, there was a man, uh, an elderly man, who was actually the brother of the governor. He was disabled in some fashion, Exquimelin isn't exactly clear, and he failed to leave the city before Morgan arrived. 
He lived in a, a hovel on the charity of a local church and the hospital in town. He wound up uh, being found by the pirates and questioned, and when he agreed to give up his riches at the threat of torture, he uncovered a hole built into his floor where he had some earthenware dishes, a little bit of fabric, and a grand total of three pieces of eight. That's not very much. He confessed, though, after the pirates pressed him, to being the governor's brother, and he was tortured for hours upon hours to give up the riches that the pirates assumed he had until, finally, mercifully, he died. There's also the tale of a slave master that Morgan had on the rack, torturing him, only to hand over his implements of torture to the man's slave, who then proceeded to butcher him mercilessly, and then turned to the other slave masters, and then yet more until he wore himself out from killing Spanish slave masters. But then, even those stories, as interesting as they are, they might not be true. You see, here though, I wanted to give an account from the Spanish point of view, but I still had to rely on Exquamelon for many details, and the torture might not have happened at all. The only place that that appears is in the Buccaneers of America. The Spanish don't even mention it in their reports, so I chose not to add it into this story. But I wanted to experiment with a few new elements. If you enjoyed some of them, I'd really appreciate it if you let me know. If you hated some of them, I'd really appreciate you letting me know about that too. Either way, we're in the home stretch with Captain Morgan now. We're getting close to the end point of his story. Next week, we're going to talk about the events that happened after Maracaibo and everything that led to his last and greatest raid. Our theme music was, this week, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you're enjoying their music, why not go on over and check them out at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G.com.au. After you're done over there, why not check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com or go on over and check us out on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, SoundCloud, or wherever it is you happen to listen to your podcasts. If you're enjoying the show and you'd like to support it, you can always do so at patreon.com or at the website. You can leave a donation. And we also really appreciate everybody that leaves us a review or a rating at iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, or wherever you listen to the show. Once again, though, and most importantly, as always, thank you for listening.